0: Welcome to the Long Thread podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Handwoven, Piecework, Spinoff, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. This episode is sponsored by Trainway Silks. You'll find the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trainwaysilks.com. Choose from a rainbow of hand-dyed colors. Love Natural, their array of wild silk and silk blends provide choices beyond white. Trainway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. I'm your host, Long Thread Media co-founder Anne Merrow. Lydia Christensen and her husband founded Abundant Earth Fiber in 2014. They wanted to support their family doing work they loved, and they also wanted to be part of the movement of valuing small batch wool from the sheep and the shepherds who raise them, through shearing, milling, and all the way to the consumer. Abundant Earth Fiber has partnered with Long Thread Media to offer 25% off store-wide until August 15th for our all-access subscribers. So your company is Abundant Earth Fiber, and one of the things that you do is that you're a fiber mill. What does that mean exactly?
1: Oh, for us, it has meant a lot of different things over the years. And I have a hard time answering that because we might be like not a traditional fiber mill today, the way people, you know, think of it, but in like the general sense, we process wool and we turn raw wool into yarn and roving.
0: So one of the reasons I asked is that I think it means different things to different people. You know, if you, if you know somebody who's getting yarn, they get it from the mill, or if you're a spinner, you might send a fleece off to the mill, but- You do a whole range of different things. So for one thing, when I look at your site, I notice that you are not just processing for other people. You also offer yarn and fiber yourself. Yes. Then you also, you know, pair with local farmers and are actively sourcing your fiber. So it's not just a question of, I take what you give me and I give it back in a different format.
1: So the common thread from the beginning of creation of our mill is that... I felt really drawn to creating something with this natural material. I want to work with wool and I'm not a farmer. A lot of cottage mills are farms that bring the mill in as like a value added opportunity to do the service for local farms and stuff like that. Kind of that's where we're different because I was a school teacher and I was looking for something more personally rewarding, you know. And uh, <laughs> it's a, it was like a huge career change in a career path, not just in a value added retirement job or whatever, which is, you know, we kind of see that a lot. So we're all in. And then that's a big difference because then we have to feed our family. We have to provide for our kids. And we do that solely through the mill. So what I learned early on is that doing custom processing and wholesaling products is kind of for, for how labor intensive the work is, that's a break even. And that, you know, we have to have a retail product to make this work sustainable. And this is the work that I care about and want to do. So, so that's why we do sell our own products and we limit, we have a cap on how much wholesale, but also how much custom we actually do. So we have a pretty short list, I'd say, of farms that we work with and we do their annual clip and we have a great relationship and really proud of the products that we make for them. But we're not a traditional cottage mill in that we have open doors to taking like small batches. We don't do that. So a lot of
0: people, when they're envisioning making a life change, think that they're going to go and get a farm and that they're going to be shepherds. But yeah. you took this in a different direction. What was it about having a mill that was really appealing to you?
1: Oh, that's a great question. So for our family, my husband and I both were at a a crossroads where we were looking for change and our careers were kind of draining us. And a lot of people feel that. A lot of people have experienced that and can relate with that. And what I was doing in my personal time was learning how to hand spin. It just happened to collide with that time period in our life. And I was like, Spinning, and I was so excited about learning how to spin and how to process wool. And my kids were like infants. So (laughs) for me, it was like it was reclaiming my personal time. And some days I only got 15 minutes, some days I only got five minutes, but my spinning wheel was in the corner of our dining room and it just reminded me that I'm allowed to have time too. And so, out of that personal sort of reclaiming of my time, I was asking the question constantly, what am I going to do? What am I going to do differently? I was a public school teacher and I do love teaching, but the whole thing was just like draining me. And what am I going to do? What am, And I'm spinning and I'm weaving and I'm knitting while I'm asking this question. And it was sort of just like, duh, do something with what you love and spend more time with what you love. So I just, I found myself like evolving in that direction and I, I remember putting my kids in their car seats and just driving around our community. We live on Whidbey Island, which is is mostly rural. And so we still have farmland close to us. And I mean, like two doors down my neighbors had a couple of sheep in the yard, two sheep. And we didn't have to drive far to just drive by farms that had sheep out. And I got real bold and started knocking on doors, <laughs> knocking on doors and just calling people that I would heard about and one time our local thrift store, we have an excellent thrift store, called me out of the blue and said, we heard that you're going around looking, looking for wool. <laughs> Is this true? And somebody had had donated some wool and they were looking for a way to get rid of it. And um, so, I, of course, I went down and picked it up. But it was just like somebody had shorn their their sheep and just thrown the wool in a in a queen-size cotton sheet and just dumped it at their thrift store. And that is kind of the picture of what's going on with wool. Uh, most people don't know what to do with it or have it building up. And, okay, I said most people. Most people in the wool industry do have stuff to do with it and, and it gets moved around. I'm talking about small batch farms where there's less than 100, less than 50 sheep. It's very hard to move that wool in a lot of those people have no idea what to do with it or what's the value of it and all that. So, so you could kind
0: of see that maybe getting more sheep wasn't the thing to do, but getting a mill, it's not a small enterprise and you don't have a small mill either. You have, you know, <laughs> big grown up equipment. So. Yeah.
1: There's a fine line between stupidity and inspiration. <laughs> Very fine line. <laughs> I just um, my talents kind of were pointing in that direction and um, I was very drawn to it and um, kind of had gone down this path to learn about the wool in my community and and how to work with wool. I had taught myself you know, how to wash it and card it by hand and really not very well if I went back in time and looked at <laughs> what I had done back then. It really wasn't that good at it, but I understood the process and was just super drawn to it. And honestly, that's a really dumb reason to buy a mill. <laughs> but that that's what happened and I started researching equipment and I got to know, you know, what what types of equipment are available out there for small mills and kind of just started playing with the idea of what I might want and what we could do and it was like cosmic like doorways opened opportunities came up and I was just like, well, are you going to go? Are you going to do this or not? And I had to do it and and it just I mean, from the time that I originally said to my husband, I think I want a mill to the time we had our grand opening was like six months. That's insane. Wow. That's insane. But that's what I'm saying. I, I felt like the universe like pushed me forward out of against my will. <laughs> and learning, had, how to, yeah.
0: learning how to use all that equipment is, is not insignificant either.
1: No, 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 no. So I, I mean, I do my homework. I did my research. I traveled around and visited other mills and I spent I spent quality time taking notes and observing and asking questions and formed some relationships with a couple mentors that I felt like, you know, I had on my side to call for help when I needed it. You know, I felt like I had built up a little bit of support in that way. But that was it. It was a crazy, fast transition from having this idea and then standing in the middle, looking at my machines, wondering what I was going to do. So, but it just, it was natural to me and I just got to work and I worked very hard and there was a period of about, it's hard to measure at 12 to 18 months where I worked 16 hour days, seven days a week. I mean, I'd stop when I crash. (laughs) And that's not really an exaggeration. I mean, that, that sounds like an exaggeration, but it was intense. And, um, trial and error and not just learn yes learning from my mistakes but also learning how to be okay with my mistakes and see them as opportunities and not failures that was a huge part of learning how to use the machines and just being okay with really being bad <laughs> <laughs> so that i can be with those mistakes and and think about them and study them and not not berate myself and that that really was a huge part of learning how to use the equipment and having confidence having confidence in myself as a woman to also be a mechanic and solve all my own problems <laughs> i was there by myself and my kids were being cared for and my husband was working full time still to pay the bills because i wasn't making any money yet <laughs> and um the, in our culture that's that's not expected for a woman to be able to you know, be a mechanic, <laughs> but just like accepting that and just getting to work showed me that, yeah, not only can I, but I'm, I'm good at it and I can do this. Yeah. And then I started learning and yeah, it was uphill from there.
0: So then you have your grand opening, you have this mill and you have to have wool to put through it. You mentioned that there are farms around you on on Woodby Island. Are those the folks that you work with for your for your own yarn or how do you find the farms that you want to work with?
1: I am just as passionate about sourcing the wool as I am about running the mill. And I have spent hours and hours and hours talking with farms, visiting farms, buying wool, good wool and bad wool, <laughs> taking in donation wool and um I'm just I'm really in love with wool as a raw material and i and i acknowledge that my place in the chain of work that's involved is after shearing i'm not going to be the person to tend the animals or do the shearing you know that's where my work picks up and so i respect the people that do that work very much and i love to spend time with them and visit and get to know from their perspective their love for wool is something we have in common, but in very different, you know, tasks. I mean, I buy wool from all different breeds and all different size farms. One of the things I've learned as a spinner who has sent
0: fleeces to different places, granted only one at a time, but different mills specialize in different things, both based on the interests of the person who, who owns the mill and the experience of the person who runs it, but the equipment itself. Yeah. What do you think is your specialty and how did you get there? Oh,
1: yeah, there are lots of different specialties. And I love that concept. And I think that that's something definitely cottage mills could build on in the future. I I think cottage mills who specialize do better work than cottage mills who try to span like everything because not all equipment is suited for certain types of fiber. And like you said, skill set and interest. And, um, you know, there's enough work to go around. And if we had that community that could work together and specialize in different types of wool and different types of products, I mean, I think we could really crank it out. So my specialty is it's in research and development. My fascination from the beginning has been in, what can I learn from this wool? And so I'm always drawn to things I haven't done before or things that have something to teach me. I mean, that's where I get like really excited but like in our products we spin 100% non superwash domestic US wool. So everything that we sell, all the fiber that we sell is raised and milled in the United States. And we try to really protect and promote that idea of local, which also means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so I can encapsulate it in our products by saying domestic minimally processed you know wool and then from there we can um we can narrow in and we can say some things are breed specific some things aren't some things are blends my specialty is local sustainable small batch that's that's what i think of as our specialty
0: another washington fiber lover judith mckenzie said that you know we When you think about great places for wool, a lot of people think about Australia or England, but we don't give enough credit to the United States for being the source of incredible wool that it is.
1: Oh, yeah. You want to go down that rabbit hole? (laughs) (laughs) I have some interesting notes about the historical context of wool in the United States. It's okay if I ramble on for a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. The Pacific Northwest, where we are, has so many different types of of wool. and that's something that I feel I feel like we're in a good spot and I feel safe being in this spot as a mill because there's always something interesting to work with and lots of diversity, which I think is really healthy. And different regions throughout the United States have their their specialties and whatnot, but one of the reasons the United States, doesn't get the attention (laughs) maybe for the wool is because a lot of that we're talking about is on from small farms, farms that have less than 100 sheep. And those small farms and the small batch community that I'm really involved in doesn't register on the radar of data and statistics that, that get measured in the international and global markets and stuff like that. So for context, I have some I have some numbers to give us context, okay? Hit me. All right. So before World War II, the U.S. produced most or all of the textiles that we consumed. There was lots of textile production going going on. There was lots of farming going on. We raised and milled everything that we needed also as consumers. So it was easy to find U.S.-made textiles. During World War II, the government discovered that we weren't producing enough wool to outfit all of our soldiers. There was a lack. Wool socks, wool coats, wool blankets, and we were coming up short. Knit your bag. so, Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So after World War II, a subsidy was created to incentivize wool production. And it was called the Wool and Mohair Subsidy. It survived into the 90s, the 1990s. And basically... Farmers could submit their receipts to the U.S. government for pounds of wool sold, and then they would get a check back dollar for dollar on what they sold, doubling the value of wool to the producers. However, this hardly needs to be said, but the problem with that is that it really incentivizes the large corporations, the huge mega farms who can command a higher price per pound at auction. Than the small family farms who are selling to their neighbors or their you know, local communities or whatever, they're not getting as, as high a dollar per pound. So they're not getting the subsidy in the same proportion. I can't remember the number, like two or four recipients of that subsidy who were accepting 80 to 90 percent of the funds that were given out. And then everybody else were, yeah, you're getting a check and it doubles the value of the wool. But <laughs> what it also did was create a dependence on that. And not really benefiting the the healthy ecosystem of production on different scales. So don't we just see that in like every industry now? I mean, isn't that like a tale that's on repeat? That we know from from looking at all this that diversity does create balance. And the more diverse the system can be and is allowed to be, the stronger and healthier it is and it can grow. So Another oversight that the legislators who created that subsidy had was that at the same time that that was going on, the suburban boom was happening. And so people coming home from the war were getting jobs in the city, buying suburban houses, and farms have been on decline since the 30s. So they're boosting production, but also dwindling in the number of farms that existed. So the USDA publishes reports every year on all these data points you know so according to the USDA in the year uh, so in the year i was born in my lifetime domestic mills processed just over 115 million pounds of wool and we used all of it we used it domestically we produced more than 115 million pounds and we used it in 2016 2 years after we started our mill the U.S. processed 15 million. Wow. Dramatic, right? Yeah. It's not just a statement about wool use. It's a, it's a statement about our culture.
0: And before you said we made it and we used it, are we using that whole 15 million pounds?
1: Um, no. <laughs> We're exporting more than half of it to be processed overseas and then buying back in finished goods. So that shouldn't be too surprising. I mean, we know that most of textile production is outsourced. That's like a dramatic number, 115 to 15 in my lifetime. But we have seen in the past five years an uptick. So whether that's going to like hold, I mean, it's, there's, an, there's a sense of optimism from the people that I talk to about this. But uh, so I'll give you one more number. In 2021, the total amount of wool shorn in the U.S. was 22.5 million. So interesting that the USDA was telling like how much we shear instead of how much we're using and and processing. Um, I think I'd have to dig a little deeper to find that number, but that's kind of what they were advertising is here's what we're shearing. So still interesting to know that.
0: And it is amazing also that in a way it's kind of separated the difference between what's happening at these really big scales and what's happening with crafters and small mills because we're not probably not even
1: a blip not even in those numbers the small farms and small farms to the american sheep industry are are flocks of a hundred or less and the people that i work with are usually 50 or 60 or less these aren't registered in those numbers i mean these are those numbers are a reflection of the ranches who can bale their wool and sell it at auction and that's where that data comes from so and also for perspective, the average price of that wool that was sold in 2021 was a dollar seventy per pound, and that sounds bad, but that's up. <laughs> I was the re- the reason I didn't wear
0: react been. was that the first fleece, I, first fleeces I bought as a hand spinner, at, and some of them were blue ribbon winning fleeces. I paid five or six dollars for. So when you say a dollar, I think, oh well. That markup doesn't seem that high to me. So when you say it's a dollar something and I was paying $5 a pound, holy mackerel. I mean, how much was the poor farmer spending on yeah. giving me this hand, this hand spinner's fleece?
1: Yeah, right. So valuing wool is complex. And valuing wool in the small batch, what I, from what I hear, I mean, anecdotally, is um, farmers would be happy to cover the cost of feed or they'd be happy to cover the cost of medical you know sub to to subsidize the care of the sheep because sheep are multi-purpose animals they give a lot to the farm the farms aren't usually looking for the sheep to earn their wages 100% it's common especially on small batch that just a little something just to cover the cost of shearing or you know pick one line line yeah. item of care and just cover that most people seem to be happy with that level but in the 90s the average price per pound was $10 or more because wow. of the wool subsidy. A journalist published an article called The Golden Fleece. It was it was a huge, impactful expose about the wool and mohair subsidy. And it had an impact in Congress. And Congress sort of they were like, huh, huh? Wool subsidy? Okay, let's get rid of it. <laughs> and it like, it just wiped out a huge percentage of those those small farms that were at the bottom of the list you know who were just getting by because of the subsidy selling their farms moving on do something different that was a game changer for a lot of people that 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 went away but it's hard to judge if that's a good thing or a bad thing because we want wool to be able to stand on its own right yeah so but it but it did change the landscape a ton and then we lost we lost a lot of farms because of that in the 90s We also lost mills who can't get that wool anymore or can't process it at the same price. And one guy I was talking to um, runs a wool pool and he said it was like overnight, you could get $10 a pound for your wool and then the next day, 10 cents a pound. It was like, it was that dramatic and it was just like instantly. So I wasn't there. I didn't own sheep at the time, but a lot of the farms we buy from say they remember sending their receipts in. And that was like, a huge change that that impacted a lot of the smaller farms. Yeah, so we love wool. We love our local farms. We love the craft and yeah and yet wool isn't recognized in our country as a valuable commodity.
0: Dilemma. So we've talked about some numbers so I'm just going to ask how many pounds of wool do you usually work with?
1: Um it's fluctuated over the years depending on how many employees we're running or you know, which direction we're kind of focused as a business. But on average, we do 50 to 100 pounds a week. So I'm going to say 300 pounds a month is a pretty comfortable average. And that's finished clean product.
0: So, and we've been talking about this in terms of wool and wool mills, but for most people who buy it, Wool mill is sort of synonymous with yarn factory. (laughs) (laughs) And I notice sometimes that I think that there's a difference between yarn, even even yarn from a mill that was designed by a hand spinner and yarn that comes from a more large, repeatable background. So when you're designing your yarn, what sort of traits do you want it to have?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Good question. And before I answer that, I want to ask you, Mm -hmm. what do you sense in the difference is the difference in yarn that you work with or that you spin fiber you spin between like, I would call it a commercial yarn versus a minimally processed small, small mill yarn or something like that. Right.
0: In some cases, I find that it's a little bit more consistently inconsistent. So, (laughs) So if you get commercial yarn, sometimes you'll get a spot where there's like this big Slub or break or blow in the middle of it. And when I get minimally processed yarn, sometimes it's a little bit more, there'll be a little bit more twist in one part, a little bit less twist in another part, but it's that way throughout. It feels livelier to me, um, mm-hmm. probably more elastic is, is mm-hmm. part of what I'm mm-hmm. saying. I think even when I get worsted, spun, small batch, it tends to be a little bit more lofty. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just off the top of my head.
1: Yeah. But there's just a look when you look at it, (laughs) it just looks bouncier. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So I have a lot to say on this one some technical stuff and some not technical stuff. To answer your original question, processing small batches for me, the big difference for me is that I'm standing as a mill in the middle of these relationships with farmers and with handcrafters. I'm standing between those people who are raising the wool and people like yourself who are buying and crafting with it. Incredible talent on both sides of me and I want to I want to deliver. I want to I want to be able to communicate with everybody and deliver something meaningful to handcrafters. And what's meaningful to me is preserving the the natural value of the wool, the complex attributes in wool, and also nourishing our sense of community. The small batch community are farms, mills, and handcrafters, And that's a really tight supply chain. And it can be a really successful and productive <laughs> supply chain if there's quality work being done and you're delivering a meaningful product to your buyers, of course. And so... What I'm trying to do is like do service to the raw material and the diversity that's available in wool and then also serve it up in a way that knitters are just going to be thrilled with. So small batch wool is, it's satisfaction, it's hard work, and it's meaningful craft in the end because it connects us to the natural world and it connects us to each other as human beings. Something that I like to, <laughs> something that I like to do, especially with with younger people, with with kids, and even teenagers, I've done this, um, but also it's fun with adults. Is to just say, close your eyes and think about wool and what does it look like. And there was a time in my life when I, I don't know, without it being a sweater or a hat, I didn't know what a fleece looked like. I wasn't raised with that background. And there was a time when I didn't know. And for a lot of people, where the raw material comes from and how it's connected to our natural world is really abstract. And then you open your eyes and look around you in the room that you're standing in. Can you tell the difference in the things around you? Can you tell the difference between the things that are made by machine and the things that are made by, by hand? There's a huge discrepancy most of the things in our life are made by machine, and it can be it can be a real exciting and also challenging thing to identify things that are made by hand. I would love to know if other people do this. Other fiber artists do this. I've never asked this this question, but when I go like to the grocery store, sometimes I just like stare at people's clothing, look at their <laughs> coats, and I'm like, what kind of yarn is that? Is that a two ply? Is that a cable? Is this, is anybody do that? Is that just me? Am I weird? <laughs> But being able to see the natural world around us is, is something that we're not really trained to do because we're so inundated with synthetic and machine-made things. Small-batch wool puts us in direct contact with not just the, raw, the natural material, but that, that narrative and those relationships show us where it came from and how we as human beings are connected to this earth that we all depend on equally. Do you remember in, uh, I think it was 2017, we had a solar eclipse. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? Yep. This isn't fiber related, but it was like, just like changed my life. I think (laughs) it was the summer. It was like August, maybe 2017. And it was like a normal hot summer day. We all knew solar eclipse was coming and like everybody was outside and, and doing their, their view boxes and things like that. And, um, I don't remember experiencing a solar eclipse before that moment, but we went from like a warm, cheery, sunny day to the sun being darkened and it was cold and dark. And my, I just felt dread. There was like this, just this, this isn't natural. (laughs) It was, it was like the middle of the day and the sun just went black. I mean, we've been in like, rainstorms where it's like dark when it's supposed to be sunny but this was different the sun was blacked out and for few minutes that we experienced that I just had like this sense of my human dependence on the sun and everybody that was outside everybody that I ever knew in this life has the same fragile dependence on the sun what what do we take for granted more than the sun (laughs) And yet we all depend on it equally. The sun gives energy and life to our planet. It moves water in cycles and water gives life. And the sun turns water to sugar for plants to make their own food and
0: and Gene Carver over at the Imperial Stock Ranch in eastern Oregon oh, mm-hmm. talks about how they're sunshine sheep because that's the sun right. makes the grass go and, and the sheep eat the grass. And so the wool is directly coming from the sunshine as well.
1: That's that's right. I, I was standing on a private farm in Oregon talking to the shepherd, looking over his beautiful pasture, and he says to me, I don't I don't farm sheep what, what do you think I farm? <laughs> I was like, I, I don't know. Oh, it's soil. It's soil. You know, you take good care of the soil then. And he was like, no, no, you, t- you can take all that. It's the sun. I'm farming the sun. I'm farming the energy that's moving through all these living. They're doing all the work. <laughs> he, that, he's farming energy. And how much control do we have over that? We have none. We depend on it. And our place is like, we're here to facilitate these natural cycles that are around us all the time and we depend on. And the natural world is the one constant in all of our lives from birth to death that we depend on equally as human beings, unbiased dependence as human beings. And so if there's anything that would bring us together as humans, I think it would be the natural world. and sharing our responsibility to care for it. And um, the small batch community is, is in such a good place Mm -hmm. to do this, Yeah, you know, because we're small, we're small. We're not a, we're not a huge complicated supply chain, even though textiles can be diversely huge. We raise the sheep, we turn it into yarn and -hmm. we hand knit it because we have such a simple connection to each other, you know, simple. It's like all I do all day long. <laughs> it's, it's not simple all the time, but but it is simple compared to other things in our world and in our life. And I think the small batch community has the most power going forward to revolutionize our idea of sustainability and, and mm-hmm. community. That's meaningful craft. That's small batch to me is mm-hmm. it's more than just the yarn. It's more than just the breed or the Fibre traits, which is a whole nother thing we could talk about. I, I mean, <laughs> right? I love it all. But really, what it what the small batch wool community is about to me is bringing something meaningful into your own craft and connecting with the other people who are involved in it. So,
0: but some of what you need to do to make that connection is also to create a product that the knitter or weaver or spinner is going to want. So, how do you approach that? Has that been a sort of a trial and error? Is it sort of following your own taste? How do you how do you decide what <laughs> it is that you're going to offer?
1: Oh yeah, tons of trial and error. And like I said, my I think that my strength is in R and I've developed so many different yarns that just give me I I have a lot of feedback on a lot of different breeds and a lot of different styles of yarn, and that's a blessing and a curse because. I'm overwhelmed all the time, but it's trial and error. And also it's compromises, which is hard for a lot of people in the small batch community to appreciate compromise because you have so much ownership over your flock and you want that yarn to say 100% sunshine's wool, mm-hmm. <laughs> 100% lemon drops fleece. And that's something like so special to have ownership over that finished product. But it's it's become unsustainable to do those micro batches at a price that can provide for a family. It's, it's very, very challenging. And um, in my opinion, that's kind of an unsustainable model. As yeah, nice as it is. So compromising, not in like degrading the quality, but by blending with... Other fibers or sharing sharing the workload with other mills. I mean, it just helps make the process more sustainable if you're willing to combine efforts with other people. Sure. Yeah. And other fibers. So, what
0: kind of yarns do you make? And I'm asking you. I, I've checked to see. You know, I have like my favorites of, of the things <laughs> on your website, but you know, you've mentioned for knitting. Do you mostly have a particular customer in mind, or have you sort of identified a couple different
1: niches? Yeah. I try to offer um, lots of different things, but our top sellers are saltwater and it's kind of a new product but it's been in development for a long time and it's called Renew, which is a a DK worsted weight yarn. And these these are our two top sellers and they're domestic non-superwash merino. And we do all the dyeing here and we do all the spinning here, but we purchase wool already washed and combed into tops. So here's another thing. Here's a technical side of what makes small batch different from, from large scale. Okay. A commercial yarn factory would take the same top and spin it into yarn. What we have, what's called a semi worsted process. And these, these words get so confusing because there's overlap between like gauge of yarn being worsted and like probably you know, like, It's confusing, but I'm just going to tell you the words and you can figure it out later. (laughs) (laughs) Most cottage mills are preparing semi-worsted or woolen spun. Semi-worsted would be a process where you card the fiber, you draft it, and you spin it. Whenever wool gets combed, all the tiny little and oils get shaken out. And for small batch mills, it's really not Feasible to own a comb. It's very, very rare. It's so expensive to do the labor, but the machinery is so expensive. And there's really only a handful of people that I know who have one at the small batch scale. So, small batch, semi worsted, allows more air to get trapped in between the fibers. It's something like midway between a woolen and a worsted. And that texture that's like right in there in the middle where you're blending a top with a local wool, it opens up the fibers just enough to give you this this sense that they're like alive. Like they have like, they feel different. They haven't been like packed down and compressed and like totally worsted out, (laughs) you know? But they're also not woolen spun, jumbled up, a little scratchy, like short staple. It's not woolen either. It's somewhere right in the sweet spot, right between. So. That texture is is really special, and a lot of people describe it as like having soul. Because you can you you not just can feel the difference, you could smell the difference in, in in minimally processed. It doesn't smell like chemicals. It doesn't smell like uh, you know perfectly clean all the time. Sometimes you can smell the lanolin, and um, that just gives it like a living quality, you
0: know. So another thing about bigger batch commercial yarns is that for centuries the commercial wool industry has bred for white because it's easier to dye. But one of the things that I see more in small batch and I'm, you know, looking at at your website is that it's not just all white so that there's a natural color as well as the sort of the white.
1: Yes. This is like, to me personally, in my own, in my own handcraft, the most fascinating thing about wool. Not only does it have it has elasticity, it has absorbency, it's hydrophilic, it's got like all this like temperature control, all these fancy attributes naturally in wool, but then it also has all these design elements like crimp and micron and color and the huge range of color of natural. I mean, I love, I'm, I live near Seattle. I like grays. I, le- <laughs> I like naturally subdued colors and that's what I tend to wear. Um, so I'm drawn to it. It's so fascinating to me that sheep and fiber animals can produce colors ranging from white to browns to black to everything in between silvers and taupes and rose grays. And I mean, to me, they're all beautiful. Yeah. I like to work with them as much as possible. To, but to be honest, they're very special and they're very rare. And it's difficult to source and process colored wool at scale. It's very difficult. Yeah.
0: So, yeah. When you, when you have one of those big farms, they often will you know select out color genetics. Yeah. Whereas if you're a hand spinner, I mean.
1: Yeah. So if you have a ranch um, and you have like thousand head or more, you mark your flock with black lambs. So for every one hundred sheep, you have one black lamb. And so if you're looking out over the pasture and trying to figure out if all your sheep are there, you count the black lambs and, okay, 100, 200, 300, they're all there or whatever. And at that scale, those those black lambs aren't really like valued for their they're doing a job to help like track the flock. And their wool is considered like undesirable, like you said, because it can't go in with the white wool. And the grade of that colored wool, it's like not even a consideration. It's an afterthought. It's, it's like, that's waste wool. That's a byproduct. But from a spinner's flock, oh, <laughs> those natural colors are bred in mm-hmm. along with attributes that a spinner would love, like crimp and fineness and what, whatever the breed attributes are. And um, they're just stunning. And they're like highly desirable in price. So I mean, if a larger farm wants to start getting more for their wool, <laughs> pay yeah. attention to that colored wool and sell it at a premium. Mm-hmm.
0: And I noticed, you know, I didn't even know for a long time that there were colored Merinos. But when I look at yeah, what you mentioned are your staple yarns, the saltwater and the Renew, that sure looks to me like dyed color over a natural color.
1: <laughs> and it does. Our natural colored product is Joseph and Annie. Mm-hmm. And that is usually in like a cool natural gray or a or like a warm brown. We call cinnamon and the cool we call pepper. So Joseph and Annie is a blend of merino top with local natural colored fine wool. With salt water and renew, it looks natural. I really try to like present that way, but it's dyed. That's really? a, Yeah, that's a that's a gray dye base. Wow. With, with an over dye in the in the color. Yeah.
0: That is so cool because I can see that there are two layers in there.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Yeah.
0: yeah, I just love that overdyed
1: look. Oh, yeah. It's like dimension, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: and part of the reason I mentioned that is that you came up with a dye product itself so that your customers yeah. can do that dyeing themselves. And yeah. it's, it's a lot of it is for overdying. Is that right?
1: Oh, yeah. So our dye products are called wool tinctures. And... I mean, this kind of traces back to like my roots in fiber arts, which were when my kids were infants and I just wanted to reclaim my time. And it kind of goes back to those roots because there are so many rabbit holes in fiber arts. And we have clear boundaries about like, nope, I want to I want to knit. I want to spin, but I don't want to die. And I don't want (laughs) to get into we. You kind of know like where your boundaries are, because otherwise they would just like take over your life. and. I found myself at a point, we had the mill and I was making yarn all day long and I wanted to be able to dye for my own projects, okay. but I couldn't handle one more thing. I didn't <laughs> want to have like a whole nother room or like a, even a closet at home would have been too much for me with like pots and pans and like, I didn't, I didn't have the time. And so I just started stewing on that. And I, I came up with an idea to pre-measure the amount of dye that I need for the colors that I wanted. I started playing with that just for my personal use and it was so fun and I shared it with some friends and it sort of snowballed (laughs) snowballed into like an actual product. We now have 25 colors and we retail and wholesale through our website and it's like evolved into, it's like dying for non-dyers. It's for like you can dye and get predictable colors without knowing anything about dyeing. And it only takes a few minutes. And it's sort of, you know, reclaiming yourself as a fiber artist to know <laughs> I don't want to spend time on this, but I still want to have a custom dyed skein or yeah. I still want a certain color for a project. And and um a lot of people are sensitive to their stashes. Mm-hmm. Right. And like we have, you know, so much yarn that we we love but we're not using, or maybe the color has changed or it wasn't what we expected. I get calls a lot from people who buy a hand-dyed skein and it's not at all what they thought it was going to be or, or whatever. And well tinctures give you like a really quick solution to changing, over dyeing, like you said, fixing color and, and really it's about just, yeah, reclaiming your time and your space so you can be a, the kind of fiber artist that you want to be. And if you want to be a dyer, these might not be right for you because they <laughs> kind of take all the work out of it. Well, a lot of people that I know who are dyers who
0: want to have a repeatable color start with um, a solution. So you mix up these solutions of 1% and right. something, something. Yeah. But then you're all done and you have these. You might as well be living in an old fashioned apothecary because you have all these <laughs> jars.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yep. And drip marks and yeah. masks and gloves. And this takes all that out of it. Mm-hmm. It's super safe. and. It's super easy. I mean, I do it in my kitchen. And even if my kitchen's a mess, I can still do it in my kitchen. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's
0: a good point because I think a lot of people, when they think I don't want to be like a a dyer and buy professional dyes, they think that the only options to them are food coloring or, you know, cake dye, which is essentially food coloring, which seems safe, but is also pretty limited and completely unpredictable.
1: That's right. Yeah. No, these are professional acid dyes. And I did all the math. Ahead for everybody. So you don't have to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> super, super predictable, super effective. There's loads of people that have used them and sent, put reviews up on the website, you know, so you can kind of see what other people's experience has been with them, not just my word, but, uh, and there's some videos up there. You can watch a demo. It's, I shortened it. So it's like really fast <laughs> to get the gist. You don't have to wade through a long video. Yeah, it's just, it's fun. And, it's enchanting is the word that like always comes to mind because um, we die in a unless I need a larger vessel, I die in a glass gallon-sized glass jar. And mm-hmm. so you can see the dye transferring out of the water into the wool. And kids love that and I love it too. Yeah. <laughs> but it's fun. It's super fun, super easy, clean, make use of what you have, customize your projects, and go ahead and buy that that natural colored brown wool that maybe that's not your color, but go ahead and get it and support that, that mill or that farm and then get, get the color you want on it later.
0: Yeah. Or if you have two things that you think the texture would go great together or, yeah. you know, how many times do you like accidentally run out of yarn in the middle? One time I bought, the, one time I bought different <laughs> dilats, but that was a different story, but you know, you can yeah. kind of bring them all together under one, yeah. happy umbrella.
1: you know, all those little end pieces. That, you know, this is how do you have like a barrel full? I mean, I have so many of these little like end balls that mm-hmm. just leftover scraps. You can put them all in once over dime so they're like homogeneous color and use them up. Yeah. Weave them, weave them out, knit them up, whatever. One of the things I noticed on your website is that you have a school of
0: wool. Now you started off as a public school teacher. I'm sure mm-hmm. this is pretty different.
1: Yes and no. Um, I have always wanted to like, get back around to my roots in education. And I'm just, I love teaching and, and I don't want that to be gone from my life, but it's, my life's been pretty full. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we're finally, I'm so thrilled, finally coming to a point where, where we can publish this. And I feel that I have worked so hard to learn what we've learned here at The Mill. And there were very many opportunities for me to learn from other people a lot of it is trial and error and like personal experience and there's social groups and there's, you know, support groups on like Facebook and stuff like that. But where do you learn this stuff? And, and I always wanted to come back around to making it accessible and kind of for the purpose of making the path smoother for the next, we want this to go on for a long time and we want it to be sustainable and the next generation, I sure hope they don't have as hard a time. <laughs> as we as we had. Yeah. Not just hard, but expensive too. I mean, we spent a lot of money to learn what we've learned and to come around and be where we are. And um, the School of Wool is right now, it's my gathering place for handcrafters and professionals who have that small batch sustainability mindset and who really care about that and want to like shore up the community. So it's a place to gather and socialize and connect with people, but also learn and learn together. So we're we're using the Mighty Networks platform because they've done a really good job of integrating community with education. Mm-hmm. And as an educator, I, that just means so much to me because I don't want to just like read somebody's text or watch a lecture on a video. I especially in this community, I need to see what other people are asking and be able to respond to them and learn from their questions and also do group projects and really learn as a community. And I think that is what we really are trying to build here. So currently, Mm -hmm. at the time that this is being recorded, (laughs) we have two groups set up. One is for raw wool Mm -hmm. and one is for spinning. And within those groups, I've been sharing live streams and demos and Those groups are going to be upgraded in the next few weeks to coarse communities.
0: We were talking earlier about wool and how the value of wool seems to have come down, but certainly people in the spinning weaving needlework community place a lot of value on wool. And I think I read that somebody valued your stuff enough to actually
1: (laughs) steal it from you. (laughs) Can you tell me about the great uh, yarn hoist? Oh my God. Yes. A lot of people heard about this. This was at Stitches West 2018. We drove down with a trailer uh, full of all of our inventory. It's hard to talk about traumatic things. You know, it's not my favorite topic. But a lot of people heard about this when it happened, but they didn't hear the ending. I don't feel like I ever really got to tell like the ending of the story. So this is a good, it's a good to tell a story. So we drove down for the show and it was going to be our first time at Stitches West. we were super excited. And the night before setup, our inventory was stolen. We got up in the morning and stepped out of the hotel room, ready to like go set up. And it was gone. It was just gone. Somebody had detached the trailer from our vehicle and it was just gone. It wasn't even like, oh no, the trailer's empty. There was no trailer. It was just gone. And, and I still have trouble like processing that moment because it was so traumatic. It was like, no, no, <laughs> no, that's everything. All that work, all that wool, everything. It was, and it was like, it was more than just yarn too. We had pelts in there and we had like all kinds of products that we were, we were coming to sell and like put our best foot forward and. The funny thing is like five minutes before we had stepped foot outside of the hotel room that morning, my husband and I kind of like were taking inventory and we're like, "Okay, what's the plan for the day? And we just had this moment of clarity where we said to each other, hey, we don't know how everything's going to go at this show, but we know we're going to show up and we're going to do our best and we're going to go home when it's done. And that was the plan go to the show. That's all. Just show up, do your best and go home. That was the plan. And then this happened and we were reeling. We were like upside down and we were able to look at each other and say, just go to the show, (laughs) do your best and go home. And so we had, instead of setting up our booth that day, I was like scrambling to come up with a presentation of some kind. And so I went to like a local copy shop and started printing off photos of our mill and our products and like the farms that we work with. And I had some pretty good photos. I thought, <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I guess I can't be my own judge, but I, I felt good about that, that we we were able to just like hang them up on a wall and just stand there on repeat, telling our trauma, telling our story and telling our trauma on repeat. And although that was like completely, Challenging and difficult, and like the last thing that we wanted to do, that was the plan. Show up, do your best, go home, and that's what people needed us to do. They needed to explain why we didn't have any product, and (laughs) and and like and for every person, I mean, it was like hundreds and hundreds of people that we were like, "Well, we had everything stolen," (laughs) and everybody that we told had to process that in their own way. And I felt like even though that was really hard for for me to go through that, I sort of had like this view coming into like picture of who this community is and and how they respond to trauma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And some some people were like angry and they're like, they're going to go get those guys for us. And some people were like, well, it wasn't our people, was it? <laughs> <laughs> and like, oh, no. OK, thank God. Like, how is that supposed to? I don't understand that that doesn't make it better, but, but like I just got to see like all different kinds of um, people processing it. And of course, the word got out and um, we went home and we weren't harmed. We had each other and we still had all the things we know about yarn and we had tons of raw material back at home. And even though our shelves were empty and that was just so sad, we just got back to work and make more. And what happened was all those people that went to Stitches West started talking about it. Bloggers, podcasters got the word out and were telling people what had happened and go to our website and place an order. And we had we had so much come in that outweighed what had gone out, you know, the positive and the Oh, so much encouragement and support came in through, through orders and through people saying, take your time. There's no hurry. We support you. I mean, that meant so much to us to receive more than we had lost. And that's hard too. Mm-hmm. It's hard to receive when, when you're the kind of person who likes to do things by yourself. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard to lose, but it's also hard to receive. And so we just had this completely overwhelming, like, fullness of the story of like, you lose, but you gain. Mm-hmm. And this community showed itself. There's a lot to be discouraged about.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We've all experienced a lot of different kinds of loss, and the world isn't, it's not easy to look at. But the small batch wool community, has so much power, not just in heart, not just in like caring and having an authentic voice, not just even in quality of raw materials and finished product, but we saw the handcraft community put food on our table. It's nice to say all those things, but you have to feed the family. Mm -hmm. And in the point of like, we lost everything, the community showed up and put food on our table. And so I know from personal experience and also from data that gets published about the handcraft community, we have the financial means Mm -hmm. to really create a small batch revolution and change sustainability for the future.
0: To me, that's also an amazing testament to the power of the story, because I believe that wonderful wool and, and wonderfully made yarn is special and that that and people respond to that but people came to your booth and they couldn't they could maybe see a picture of your yarn but they could not experience your yarn and fiber at all and they still had that kind of response
1: yeah right that's mind-blowing to me still today Mm -hmm. power of the story yeah that is the only thing i did that weekend was tell the story (laughs) that was the heart that was one of the hardest things i'd ever done Mm -hmm. and how long had abundant
0: earth been open at that point
1: uh, we opened in 2014, so we were four. We were only four years old.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's pretty young.
1: Yeah, I mean yeah. we're eight years old now almost, and hey, the past two years don't even count, right? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so yeah. I still feel like we're pretty young, but we have we have covered a lot of ground.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. and I can see behind you as we stand here that your walls and your shelves are full of yarn, which is such a great yeah. feeling.
1: Yeah, it is a good feeling. Yeah. Good.
0: Well, thanks so much, Lydia. It's been great to talk to you.
1: Likewise. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Learn more about Abundant Earth Fibers and their yarns and wool tinctures at abundantearthfiber.com. Through August 15th, 2022, subscribers to any of Longthread Media's all access programs can enjoy 25% off store wide. Visit lt.media perk to learn more about this offer and our other all access benefits. Thanks to Treanway Silks for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.